As you can see, our reading tonight is Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16. Uh, please leave your Bibles open because you will have noticed that we've jumped from chapter 21 to chapter 26. Uh, during the sermon, I'm going to fill in those spots. Uh, so it would be good if you had your Bible open and can refer back also to last week's reading about the cleansing of the temple. But tonight we're starting with Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16, on page 1,546. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor will always, you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that you would teach us tonight that by your spirit and by your word, you will soften our hearts and open our minds. We long to have eyes that see and ears that hear so that we might have hearts and devotion that are centred fully on you. So please teach us now, for we pray in your son's precious name. Amen. Who is this man? What about this one? What do they have in common? What might they have in common with the chief priests and the elders? More importantly, what might they have in common with us? This evening, as I said, we're jumping ahead a couple of days in the story. But let me please, uh, and please follow fill you in on what's happened in the two days since Jesus has cleansed the temple. 
The day after having spent the night in Bethany, Jesus returns to the temple courts. On the way, he curses a fig tree that has failed to bear fruit. Immediately, this fig tree withers, a sign of what is going to happen to the temple. Despite an abundance of of leaves on this fig tree, it is not as it appears to be. It's not what it should be. It's not fruitful. Likewise, the temple and its leaders. Upon his arrival in the temple, his authority and his identity are again challenged by the high priests and the elders. However, it's not long before Jesus turns the tables on them and reveals their true identity in two parables. In the first one, he says that they are not true sons of the Father. They are not true sons of the Father. And in the second, they and their ancestors are ruthless opposers to God's true king. These men look like honourable men, godly men, but they are far from it. And Jesus sees through their flimsy facade. They are hypocrites. Chapter 22 commences with the parable of the wedding banquet where Jesus teaches us three simple things. Be ready, be wise in the way you live your life, the way you make decisions and remember that the king knows those who are truly his. Be ready, be wise, the king knows those who are his. The Pharisees then attempt to trap Jesus in his words but they fail. Again, their hypocrisy is revealed. In chapter 23, Jesus warns against hypocrisy and his chief target appears to be the Pharisees. In chapter 24, following a further prediction and discussion about the destruction of the temple, Jesus speaks about the unexpected return of the Son of Man in judgment and their need to be ready. Be ready. This chapter concludes in verse 51 with these words. Assign him a place with the hypocrites. These chapters, 21 through to 24, are all about hypocrisy, warnings against hypocrisy. When we get to chapter 25, there are three parables. Three parables. The first one, the parable of the ten virgins, encouraging us to be alert, to be ready, to be ready for the coming king. The second one, the parable of the talents. Be wise in how you live. Be wise in your decision making. Be wise in your choices. And the third one, the sheep and the goats. The king knows those who are truly his. So as you can see there, the message is the same as the parable of the wedding banquet. When we get to the beginning of chapter 26, after all this teaching, after all this public teaching about being ready, being wise and being aware of hypocrisy, 
He wants his disciples, his friends, to be ready. And so his first words after all this teaching to them, verse 2, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This is the fourth time in Matthew that he's mentioned this to them. Surely they understand now. Well, maybe not Peter, because Peter is rock by name and rockhead by nature, like most Peters I know. And not Judas, because Matthew has already let us in on what's happening with him. Has James and John's picture of what the Messiah should be like, has that changed? Well, we don't know. Meanwhile, the chief priests and the elders, they are readying themselves. They are readying themselves not to listen to Jesus, but to do evil. They are readying themselves to capture him, to arrest him. Matthew tells us that they knew, they knew that Jesus was talking about them in the parable of the vineyard. But they disregard that and now they set out to arrest and kill him. Up to chapter 26, has no one understood? Can no one see and perceive? Well, Jesus and his friends return to the peace and quiet of Bethany for another night. No priests and elders here, no pharisaical hypocrisy, a relaxing dinner in the home of Simon. Matthew doesn't tell us much about Simon, but we can learn a great deal about him from him. It's obvious that Matthew has already learned a great deal from Jesus. So what are we told here? Well, we are told that this is a house of Simon the leper who lives in Bethany. He lives in the same village as Mary, Martha and Lazarus. We are told he is a leper. Or should we now say he was a leper? He was a leper. Lepers were outsiders, outcasts. They were socially and religiously unclean. They were banished from their own homes. They were banished from their villages. And nobody was to associate with them on any level. That he is living in his own home suggests that he has been cleaned and cleansed, healed. Matthew doesn't need to tell us who made this possible. Simon has been physically and spiritually healed. This untouchable has been welcomed and embraced by Jesus. And now he returns the welcome. He invites Jesus and his friends for a meal. Having experienced God's lavish grace... He responds generously, graciously, lovingly. I want you now to cast your mind back to last week's sermon. The the cleansing of the temple and the different groups of people that were there. Who does Simon remind you of in the temple? The money changers? The priests? The blind and the lame? 
Anyone? Pardon? The children? Not the blind and the lame? Not an outsider who's been healed and held at arm's distance but embraced? I think probably, probably he reminds us of the blind and the lame. Those who had been excluded from God's kingdom by leaders for centuries. The outsiders are now welcomed in. So again, we see that the walls of this temple and the leaders of this temple are not going to be able to control and contain this kingdom of God, this kingdom of grace. Here at Simon's house that night, there is also a nameless woman. We do not need to know her name. We do not need to know her background or status. What we do need to do is to stop and marvel. To stop and marvel at such generosity and love. This is an act of true adoration and worship. She is not thinking about the expense. She's not thinking about all the eyes that are focused on her. She's not thinking about the judgments that they are casting. She's not thinking about the expectations of others. She has eyes only for the king. The king who will be condemned. The king who will die. This woman is ready. She is ready for this moment. She is ready, unlike the others, for what will happen in two days' time. An expensive gift. A priceless gift. She gives her best to the one who will give his all. Cast your mind again back to last week. Who displayed uninhibited joy and delight in the presence of Jesus? The children. The children who are not named. The children who have no status. The children who have no inhibitions. Other outsiders who are welcomed by the king. The nameless woman with her childlike abandon and love has grasped what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. She has glimpsed the true identity of this man. In two days' time, his ending will be swift. There won't even be time to anoint his body properly. This will suffice instead. The disciples... The disciples are definitely not ready for this. They are not ready for this. They are outraged. They are indignant. How dare she be so wasteful? How how dare Jesus allow and condone such waste? Indignation is not new to them. Not long before they entered Jerusalem, ten of them had displayed indignation to two of them. Ten had displayed indignation to James and John. The ten were put out because James and John's mum, Mrs Zebedee, had beaten them to the punch in going to ask Jesus for places of status in the new kingdom. May my son sit at your left hand and at your right hand in your kingdom. 
Matthew 20, 24 tells us this. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. How dare you guys even think of such a thing? Or was it, how dare you guys think of such a thing before we did? They still don't understand the nature of the kingdom. For them, it is still about status and money. But Jesus has already shown that they will be overturned. Again, please cast your minds back to last week. Who do disciples most remind you of in the temple? Who were the ones who were indignant in the temple? The chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law. At this point, the disciples align better with the chief priests and the elders than anyone else. The disciples had been in the presence of the king now for three years, on pretty much a daily basis. And they still misconstrue his identity, his plan, his kingdom. They are falling short of the glory of God. Indignation and hypocrisy often go hand in hand. Indignation and hypocrisy often go hand in hand. There are no chief priests and teachers of the law seated at this table, at this party. But our expectations were totally askewed if we thought that this would be an hypocrisy-free zone. Jesus' teaching over the previous couple of days had been heavily weighted against hypocrisy. They had been present for every word. His teaching had been for those who had ears to hear and eyes to see. But at this point it seems that they had neither. We attempted to believe that such teaching is always aimed at those Pharisees, those legalists, those self-righteous guys. But when we look into the mirror of God's word, when we look deeply into the mirror of God's word, we will not be shown a pharisaical face other than our own. Jesus' teaching on hypocrisy is not just for people like us. It is for us. For us. There is one person who takes his hypocrisy one step further, and that, of course, is Judas. Outwardly, he's part of Jesus' inner circle. He is the trusted keeper of the group's purse. He's the treasurer. And he's even been given the job above the more experienced tax collector, Matthew. Here he is like the profiteering money changers. He carries his indignation to the chief priests and gets himself a cool 30 pieces of silver. We know that those coins will be sent flying when more tables get turned in the next day or so. 
what I find most amazing, there's plenty of amazing things in this, this little party, but what I find most amazing here is Jesus' response to those who are present, especially his response to his friends, his disciples. Verse 10 shows us that he is aware of their indignant mutterings. He is aware of what's going on outwardly and inwardly. He looks beyond their individual facades and sees their hypocrisy. He sees all of this. Does he condemn? No, he gently corrects, praises what is good and right in the woman's actions and points them to those actions. How does all of this sit with us? We can be very swift to attack the apparent hypocrisy of a Rolf Harris, the apparent hypocrisy of a Harvey Weinstein, a Barnaby Joyce, the chief priests and the elders. But how do we deal with our own hypocrisy? Jesus goes to great length in his teaching here to urge us to be ready, to be ready to embrace his kingdom, to be wise about the way we live and to be, be, be aware of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy shows itself in many ways if we're not being wise in how we live. It can be a denial of a need for healing, a need for change. It can be a denial of God's help, God's grace. We can openly proclaim the grace displayed on the cross, but conveniently overlook our need for grace on a day-to-day basis. We could be all about seeking self-sufficiency rather than dependence upon our Saviour. Alternatively, we're all vulnerable to the lure of money and status. For example, we might be seeking to profit by use of power and position, influence, to gain increased recognition and status at the expense of others. We can be subtly striving to be seen in a good light by people that we regard as significant. Even in the act of preaching and leading and praying, Maybe we are even vulnerable to the point of betrayal. Hypocrisy can be seen in our quickness to criticise, to judge, and if we're caught out, our quickness to justify. It was righteous anger. It was righteous indignation. God, of course, is fully aware of the self-righteousness that lives and remains within each of us. 
He's aware of our pretense. He's aware of our appalling play acting. And this is why you and I are here tonight. This is why you and I are here tonight. It is why God brings us each and every time to church when we come. Because corporate worship is God's gift of mercy to help us combat hypocrisy. Now at first glance you might not think this is much of a gift because you're all looking up the front. But it's also not much of a gift looking at my fellow hypocrites. As I said at the beginning, God's desire is to give us an extreme makeover by stripping away the facade and by transforming our hearts. God brings us here together to be confronted not only with his true identity, but our true identity. Our true identity is both sinners and children of grace. You see, when we understand the free gift of God's grace, we don't need to be afraid to admit the depths of our sin. Because the depths of God's grace are far, far deeper. And it's not only when, and it's only when, we admit the disaster of our sin that we can really, really get excited about the grace of Jesus. When God draws us here, It is to confront us with the fact that we are worse than we thought of, we could ever think of. And that his grace is more amazing than we could ever dream or imagine. We hide, we deny, we cover, we excuse, we shift blame, we rationalise, we defend, we explain away. God's grace will expose what we want to hide. Not to shame us. Not to shame us, but to deliver us from that. To deliver us and to forgive us. We all need God's generosity and grace to respond with true worship and adoration. We need our eyes and our hearts fixed on Jesus. Like the children had their eyes and their hearts fixed on him in the temple. Like the unnamed woman had her eyes and heart fixed on him in Bethany. Tonight we're encouraged. Be ready. Be wise. Be aware of hypocrisy. And above all, be amazed again and again by God's grace. God's grace to you on offer to you again tonight and tomorrow and tomorrow and all your morrows.
Let us pray. Father, we find it so easy to deceive ourselves at times. But we pray that you would catch us out, that we would find ourselves more often catching ourselves out at play-acting, of saying one thing and doing another. Father, please strip those things from us so that we can marvel more and more at your grace, so that we can be ready for your kingdom, and so that we can be your people now. Thank you for your love. Thank you for what you want to teach us. Please help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Amen.